Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number 14. And today what we're going to be doing is talking about something called contracts. And uh, the last time that we left off or we completed that chapter on agency and agency relationships, which is essentially where you start out with creating a contract when you're first hired working for somebody to list their home, uh, this particular chapter here is going to spend more time talking about a contract. And you may say, well, you know, when I got into this thing called real estate or became interested in it, I was interested in buying houses and selling them, fixing it up, painting them, running them out. But I wasn't interested in all this legal mumbo jumbo. Well, this is very important. In real estate, everything that you do, everything that you do is in the form of a contract. You're creating some form of a contract. As I say to many, many students, that if you list a home for sale, that listing agreement is a contract. It's a contract in which you and the owner of the property who is hiring you, you're specifically setting out what you are going to do to help them market the home for uh, to help them sell their home or market their home for them. If you're making a purchase offer on a home or any property for that thing called the purchase offer, that is a contract. That's where you're helping the buyer put together the terms and the conditions in which they're agreeing to buy the property subject to things such as, you know, termite inspections and the ability to get financing and home inspections and all those things. But basically, that's a contract. If you make a change to that contract, it's called normally counteroffer. That counteroffer is a contract. If you rent property out to somebody uh, in the form of a rental agreement or a lease agreement, that's a contract. If you are going to go to work for a real estate company, real estate agent is a sales or a broker associate, you're going to have something called an independent contractor's agreement. So the thing is, is that you're going to be dealing with contract, contract, contract. Also, what becomes important in real estate is that you pay a lot of attention to details. Because what you don't want to do is be standing there one day in front of the judge and saying, Your Honor, I, I know I should have checked that box or I know I should have filled that out right, but I'm sorry. And he says, Well, your apology is accepted, but by the way, that's going to cost you $20,000 because you're going to have to pay for this or that. You know, because, so contracts are very important. That's why when you're first a salesperson, your broker is going to require to look at every single solitary contract that you put out, all the uh, counteroffers you make. They're going to want to make sure that they're correct because they're responsible for supervising your day-to-day -day activities. Very, very important. Uh, creating the contracts, creating them correctly, making sure that you're following the rules and the laws, understanding what creates the contract, uh, how, to, how, how it's created, and how it's actually terminated at the end. Very, very important. Also, who can enter into a contract? You know, there are certain people that can and certain people can't. So we really need to spend a lot of time in understanding what that is so we keep ourselves out of trouble, keep our clients out of trouble. So where do we start with this? Probably the best thing to do is by starting by talking about some of the definitions of what a contract is and sort of emphasizing that stuff. So I'm going to be doing my old favorite back and forth between the document camera and old friendly plasma screen here for the guys in the room and uh, be talking about this. So I'm going to start out by just talking about the definitions, which are very, very important. First of all, when we talk about a contract, in fact, I think this is probably, we should understand this up front. It says nothing is as important to the real estate broker or his or her salesperson than the law of contracts. Absolutely nothing. This is critical. Nothing moves without a contract being created. 
Because every phrase of a real estate transaction involves one or more contracts, it is important to understand the basic rules that govern the creation, the life of, and the life of a contract. Uh, and then it says the the idea the per, the idea of this chapter is we're going to be talking about contracts. And we're going to be specifically talking about purchase agreements. And as far as definitions go, it says a contract is an agreement, okay, to do or not to do certain act or service, okay? Every contract consists of a promise or a set of promises that are enforceable by law. The promises may be created in two ways, either in an express manner or an implied manner. So it's important that we understand what this express versus implied means. An express contract, by the way, as it tells you here, is something that is in writing. So that's why we need to define that. An express contract describes a contract that is expressed in words, either oral or written listing, purchase agreements, and or leases are express contracts. Okay, express, expressively, specifically, if you will. The other kind of a contract that we're going to be working with is something called an implied contract. And if I can get that page up here, is an implied contract. An implied if you really think about it, implied means that it has to do with some actions that you take. You do some kind of an action, and people imply that you want to do that. For example, if you go into a restaurant, you don't have to have a contract, but if you stand there and you're waiting to be seated, it's implied that the fact that you're there to eat. In most cases, that's what you're there for. Okay, So it's implied. So what they're doing here is they're going to give you, they're going to talk about what an implied contract is and then give you an example. And the example that they use in this particular situation is where they're saying, okay, you have an account. That's what this part is written right down in here. It says, uh, I'll read this and then give you an example. It says, on the other hand, an implied contract is created when an agreement is made by acts and conduct, implication rather than by words. For example, suppose you entered a hardware store where you had an account, picked up an $8 paintbrush, and waved it at the clerk as you departed. The clerk, judging from your conduct, would assume that you wanted the paintbrush charged to your account and would bill you accordingly. An implied contract would have been formed. Implied contracts are not used in the practice of real estate, okay? Now, the, uh, and I can visualize that. I mean, for all of us, those of us that have been in the hardware stores, we can visualize how many times we've been down there, the thousands of times buying paintbrushes and buying stuff. What they're talking about here is that you have a, uh, a local hardware store, you have an account there. A lot of uh, contractors do that. They have an account, they go down once a month, and they settle a, con a contract. And what you're sort of visualizing is that somebody's standing at the register, there's a great big long line of people, you're in a rush, you know the person behind the register. They know who you are. They know that you have a, an account there, and you just pick up whatever it is that you're – you may just say, hey, I'm going to go ahead and take this, and they go, go ahead, and they know who you are. That's an implied. They're implying that you are that you want it, that you're going to buy it, and it's also understood that when you walk out that door that you are going to pay for it by them charging it to your account. That's implied. You didn't write it down. It's just implied by your actions. Um, another term that we need to make sure we understand is something called bilateral. You know, we have bilateral and we have unilateral. Bi means two, okay? So we say a bilateral contract is a promise made by one party in exchange for the promise of another party, okay? Like I promise to pay you $1,000 and you promise to paint my house. 
I promise to pay you $2,000 and you promise to, I don't know, sell me your uh, uh, dining room table. Okay, that would be a, a promise. I'm going to promise some money and you're going to turn around and give me something in exchange. I may say to somebody, uh, I may actually also, pro- they may, the promise may be that they're not going to do something. You know, I may very well, we see that a lot of times. This is maybe another example. I was pulling it out here, but we as the, the federal government actually pays farmers that promise not to grow certain kinds of crops. They say, if you promise not to grow wheat on that land and leave it lay fallow because we have too much wheat right now, you know, the market is flooded with wheat, what we'll do is we'll pay you a certain amount of money if you just don't grow wheat this year. Okay, so it's a a payment for a promise on another person's part not to do some particular action. Okay, so uh, they go after this and they say, for instance, a homeowner offers a painter $2,000 to paint his or her garage and the painter agrees to do it. A bilateral contract is formed. The painter promises to pay, paint the garage while the homeowner promises to give the painter $2,000. When only one party makes a promise for an act of another, an agreement is called a unilateral contract. Uni meaning one, like a unicorn is the way I think about it. Okay, It is a promise for an act. If someone acts upon an offer, the one making the offer is obligated to complete his or her promise. They give you an example here. They say Mr. Bentley offers a reward to any person who can identify the arsonist who set his home on fire. Uh, Because this is a unilateral contract, Mr. Bentley is required to give the reward to any person who can fulfill the obligation. So that's a unilateral contract. You know, a reward. You know, I, somebody vandalized my car. I'm going to give you a reward. It's a unilateral contract. Uni on one side and it's, okay? Now, after you understand the kinds of contracts, the next thing is you have to figure out things such as, you know, what is a valid contract? What's an enforceable contract? Things like that. So we need to have some definitions of, of that. A valid contract, which is something that we need to talk about first, the classifications of contracts, a valid contract is a fully operative contract that is binding and enforceable in the court of law, and it's valid. Uh, if a buyer and a seller sign a contract, then the seller has died. There is a, va- is a valid contract, okay? The, the concept here is a valid contract means that it's legal, it's doable. You know, the people that are entering in the contract can enter into it. It's enforceable by law, meaning that if one of the parties does not do something, you can take them to court and sue them and say, you promised to paint my house and you didn't, okay, those are all valid contracts, valid. On the other hand, I can have a contract that maybe is not valid because of, because of the fact that I'm asking somebody to do something that may be illegal or may become illegal, okay? So that's why we run into the other kinds of contracts. The next one is something called voidable. An avoidable contract, avoidable contract can be affirmed or rejected at the option of the party. This, the victim can rescind cancel, annul, or void a contract remains binding until it is rescinded. So a void contract, uh, trying to think of one that might be void would be maybe you may have your, um, for example, when you get a loan, you have a, you're, you're signing a, an application saying that you are agreeing to borrow the money at the certain points and certain interests, but you have a three-day period of time in which you can change your mind. If you do that, that contract is void. 
Okay. If you have anything in consumer law where, you know, where they say, hey, you know, in order to protect the consumer, we're going to give them a period of time for them to cool off, get away from it, think about it, and see whether they continue to want to go through with it. They can either continue and do the contract or they can turn around and say, you know what, I really thought about it. I don't want to do it. That's voidable. It means that they can cancel it. Okay. Usually, in my opinion, associated with some period of time where you, you sign it and then a period of time that you can sort of think about it or change your mind, usually to protect consumers is what I think about. Avoid, on the other hand, a void contract has no legal force or effect. It does not exist. It lacks one of the essential elements of a contract, and we'll talk about those in a minute. A contract with an illegal purpose is void. And that le- illegal purpose could either be something where you're trying to get somebody to do something, that's illegal, or it's found out after you've entered into the agreement you can't do it because it is illegal. As an example, you may enter into an agreement with somebody to release them a piece of property that you own, and they happen to be, let's say it's a liquor store, as an example. Okay, Typically, anything that's associated with liquor, alcohol, uh, you know, anything along that line usually has some kind of a requirement in the zoning enforcement laws or or within the community that says that that has to be so far away from the schools or has to be so far away from the churches or something like that. So you sign the agreement, and then after you do that, you get ready to, you know, to actually move in. You find out, you know what, you're still within that boundary. You're still too close to the school. So now what's ended up happening is, is that you didn't do something. You didn't intend to do it illegally. It was just the fact that you didn't know at the time that it was illegal or it was against the law or against the zoning law or whatever. That's something I would think of in my mind. Unenforceable is a contract that is valid contract that for some reason cannot be enforced in court, proved or sued upon. Okay, It's unenforceable. We'll talk about that in a minute. Now, the life of a contract, what happens? And you almost have to think in your own mind how you go through this. The first thing that happens is that you as a consumer or if you're working with a buyer that's getting ready to buy a piece of property, you're putting together some form of an offer. And typically, any time that you have an offer, you make that offer, and that offer can be accepted as it stands, or you may actually enter into a form of negotiation. In fact, you may very well, if we go out and buy a car, for example, from an individual, like we see an ad in the paper, somebody selling a motorcycle, we want to buy a motorcycle. The ad sounds really good. We go out, we meet with the people, and we may sit there, and we may talk back and forth in generalities. Well, you know what? I, I really uh, think uh, maybe, I, you know, you want 6000 Would you take a little bit less, you know? Would you throw in those extra parts? <laughs> would you pay to have it tuned up? You know, those are negotiations back and forth. And with a house, it could be that uh, some of those negotiations could be done via the contract, or it could be where maybe you say to your broker that's representing you, listen, you know, is, uh, you know, did the, uh, do you think that the owner would allow us to rent a little, you know, rent the house before we could, you know, before we could actually close the deal because we have to move into town? So that could be something where you're just asking a question. And you ask the question, and the, your agent contacts the other agent, talks to the people, says, yeah, that's not a problem with that. So you, you never know exactly where that negotiating is starting with. It becomes more formal, though, when you start writing offers and counteroffers. You're trying to nail things down, price down. You know, you may offer a price, the price is too low, the seller comes back with another offer and raises the price up. 
you may come back and say, okay, if you're going to raise the price up, then you're going to fix, you know, you know, I want the pool resurfaced. You know, and you just go back and forth. You negotiate back and forth. That's all you're really doing at that point in time. But that's negotiation. After you negotiate it and you put it in writing, if it's a contract that has to be in writing, okay, and then after you do that, then the next phase that you're going to do is you're going to go ahead and you're going to start executing the contract. And under executing, it says an executory contract is a legal agreement, the provisions of which have yet to be uh, completely fulfilled. A purchase agreement is an executory contract until payment is made and the title is transferred, then it becomes executed. A land, con- a, a land contract might be executory for, uh, executory for years. What we're saying is, is that when we first make a purchase offer on a property, and maybe we've gone back and forth between ourselves and this, you know, the buyer and the seller, and we finally have set on some terms. You know, if we say, okay, we are going to spend three hundred thousand dollars to buy this house. Okay, we finally have come to an agreement. But within that contract, we have a list of things that need to be done. That contract is like a laundry list. For example, we say, okay, we will, we're agreeing to pay $300,000 subject to the fact that we look at the termite report. We want to see if there's any termite damage on the house. Subject to the fact we want to have a pool inspection. We want to find out if the pool is in good condition or it needs to have some work done on it. Subject to maybe uh, the preliminary title report to look and see if we have any easements or rights of way that are going to affect the property. Subject to, on the case of the buyer, subject to the case of the buyer getting financing. We may have where the buyer has a certain number of days to go ahead and qualify and obtain financing. If they can't obtain financing, the deal goes away. We may have subject to the fact of an appraisal. Maybe we get an appraisal and we find out the property that we were going to spend $300,000 for isn't worth $300,000. Maybe it's worth less. We're going to do it. So to me, that contract is like a contract where we're promising to do something based on a set of conditions that we have outlined. Once all those conditions have been met, then the contract is executed, meaning the fact that we then sign all the paperwork, the final, you know, the final escrow documents, the grant deeds, the deeds of trust, the notes, the lending instructions and all that. The money comes into escrow and funds it. The escrow officer then tells the title officer to go ahead and record, you know, all the necessary paperwork. It's recorded and then the funds are dispersed. That's when it's finally executed. But all those conditions have to be met first. To me, it's kind of like a shopping list almost, you know. Right. Next is phase three. Phase three, this stage occurs after the contract has been completed. Okay, so this is after everybody's signed and the deeds have been recorded and everything. Uh, an executed contract is one that has either been discharged or performed. Discharged means that we have decided not to do the contract, or maybe we've done portions of the contract. Performed means we've done everything that's required of the contract. Okay? After the contract has been completed, there is a warranty that every aspect of the contract has been properly performed. Okay. So anyway, those are the things that we need to be aware of, if you will. Now, when we're looking at the contracts, there's several items that we're going to categorize or elements of a contract. And these are the things that we're going to um, look at in detail now. The first thing is we have, we're going to talk about capacity. In other words, when we talk about capacity, are the individuals that are entering into the contract, who legally can enter into a contract? You know, it stands to reason that if somebody is five years old, I don't think they can enter into a contract. So there's got to be a certain age. 
So we'll be talking about, you know, those requirements. We have to talk about whether something, we have to talk about mutual consent. In other words, they both have to mutually agree that there's a contract. I can't force somebody to do something. You know, that's against the law. In fact, I could go to jail for that, right? In other words, it has to be a mutual agreement between the two of us or three of us or whoever's involved. It has to be legality or legal, or we're talking about the legality. There has to be something called consideration. Consideration can be in the form of money. It can be in the form of uh, where I, I'm going to use my uh, motorcycle as a down payment on the house. It could be in the form of a promise, like I promise to, to uh, cut your backyard grass for the next year if you happen to uh, and use, uh, you know, use that to pay as a down payment or use that to pay my rent or whatever. Okay, some form of consideration. And then we have to talk about the statute of frauds where it's going to dictate that, and we'll show you in there, where you have to have real estate contracts in writing. Okay? So anyway, uh, let me see if we can go through this. Okay, capacity, the first thing. And why would you be concerned about this as a real estate agent or as a buyer, or I mean as a seller or a buyer? You want to make sure that the people that you're entering into the agreement with can actually do this, you know? You know, you don't want to start and, for example, put your house on the market, go through a lot of work to advertise it and show it, and then, you know, accept an offer on it, and then find out that the people, are, you know, are, don't have the capacity to enter into a legal contract. So the question is, is what are these capacity things? So it says, for a contract to be valid, there must be two or more parties who have the legal capacity to contract. Everyone is capable of contract except for the following persons, minors, incompetents, and convicts. Okay? So let's talk about minors. Minors are anybody that happens to be under the age of 18, and I'm trying to find out where that is in here. Okay, a person under the age of 18. Okay, wait a minute. It's somewhere in here. A minor is a person under the age of 18. Okay, under the age means 17 and a half, 17 and three quarters, 17 and anything under 18. You're not, you know, you're not legally of age. It says a minor cannot make contracts relating to real property or property not in his and her immediate possession or control and does not have the right to employ an agent unless the minor is emancipated, which we'll talk about in a minute. An emancipated minor is one who has contractual rights of an adult the three ways that a minor becomes emancipated is, number one, through marriage. So if you become married, you become emancipated so you can enter into a legal agreement. So that means that if somebody comes to you and they're under 18 years of age, but they say, my wife and I are going to rent the apartment, okay, then they are emancipated. Okay, they can enter into it. Number two, a member, of the, uh, a member or a former member of the armed services. So if you have somebody that is under 18, and believe it or not, there are a lot of people that go in the military, you know, that are less than 18 years of age. In fact, usually like during the Second World War, there are tons of people that lied to get in the military to fight for their country that were well under, in some cases, 16. Okay, so, uh, you know, if you're underage, but you're in the military, you are emancipated as far as, as, far as this contract goes. The next one is declared self-supporting by the courts. A good example of that is, is every once in a while, we will read 
an article in the newspaper or see something in the news or on TV where somebody, usually it's in the form of uh, Jim Jones, who's a famous actor, decided that his parents were not managing his estate or his money well. He's 16 years old, and he decided he was going to fire them because the parents were, you know, you know, maybe he was a great big rock star, and he's making all this money, and the parents are squandering the money, and, and he decides that he's going to fire them. Or he feels, uh, he or she feels that the parents are just not living up to their part. You know, they're not taking good care of them, and he's able or has the capacity to go to court and say, you know, listen, I want to become self-supporting. I'll take care of myself. And probably about once a year, once every year and a half, you'll read some story about somebody that goes to the court and becomes emancipated. Okay. Um, the next thing is incompetent. Incompetent is, uh, and this becomes important too, it says an incompetent is a person who is judged to be of unsound mind, such, as a per- such a person has no capacity, power to contract. Any contract made is void. Uh, in real estate transaction with incompetence, it is necessary to have the guardian's decision approved by the court. However, both minors and incompetence may acquire property through gift and inheritance. Let me explain what that means. The concept is is that you uh, incompetent to me would be somebody that, for example, uh, especially people when they get to be their 70s or 80s, there are people that... Uh, uh, get what we call Alzheimer's disease. In other words, they start losing usually fairly a little bit at a time some of their faculties. You know, they go out and drive and they find out they can't find their way at home. They start now. I don't want to go into losing keys or your money because there's some people I've been doing that all their life. You know what I mean? My wife happens to be one of them. But the fact is, is that the fact is, is that if you have people that are that are you know becoming that way. And could maybe sometimes they could have very clear moments in which they can talk very clearly, and other times they'll act, you know, they'll get confused. We all don't know what causes that to happen, but usually somewhere along the line, somebody will say, you know what, oh, mom needs to have somebody take care of her. They'll get somebody appointed to do the necessary paperwork or documentation, appoint a guardian or somebody to take care of her estate. So that would be an example of somebody, somebody that can't make good decisions because of some sort of mental incapacity of some sort. And I'm just using that as one example. Also, the last part of it where it said that the people can acquire, but they can still acquire property by gift and inheritance, what that means is that just because somebody is incompetent doesn't mean that I can't give them something. I can I can turn around and say, you know, I could have a, a father, an uncle, a mother, a brother, whatever it happens to be, and decide that I'm going to give them something so they can receive it. Uh, they may, when they receive it, may be where it's taken care of by the guardian, but they can receive it. Also, somebody could die and leave property in will for them, so they could get it by inheritance. Okay, so that's why. So when we talk about the incompetency, because they're not entering into a contract when they receive something by a gift or inheritance, somebody's just giving it to them. They either take it or leave it. Okay, whereas when you're dealing with a contract, you have to have a mutual negotiations, agreement of the minds consideration involved and all that other stuff. So that's where, you know, you have to be competent in order to do that. That's why I would say that if you're dealing with somebody, um, you know, and they appear to, you know, you're dealing with them and they see it to be okay and all of a sudden they, you know, now there are some people like this, but they say, did you just see that spaceship land over there? Uh, Okay, or that Martian just ran by or something else happened. 
you know, or and there are some people. I have a cousin of mine that if we sat here, he's a very intelligent guy. But if we sat here, you'd say that guy's got to be, you know, he's incompetent. But he's not. He's he's actually kind of a smart guy. But the fact is, if you think somebody is, you need to basically stop for a minute and say, you know, if I sign this listing agreement with them and put the property up on the market for sale, and you know, there's something wrong here, I could end up taking offers, and they could sign things. The next thing you know, all the work we're doing is is for naught because they really can't enter into this. Legal agreements. So you want to be aware of that. People say, well, what do you do in a situation like that? In my opinion, that's why you have a broker. If you have something that you suspect might be wrong, you go back to your real estate broker and say, help, I need some help. What do you think I should do? They usually have a lot of other resources. They have fellow brokers. They have attorneys, people I can help you in making whatever that decision happens to be. But I really think that that's important. You don't want to get all the way through the deal and find out the person didn't have the capacity to actually enter into the agreement in the first place. Um, the, uh, let me see. So that's incompetent. Okay. The next one is convicts. And convicts are people that are incarcerated. And so it says convicts are per, are persons who have lost their civil rights during imprisonment. Convicts are incapable of contracting, but they do not forfeit the property in their possession. So if they have property, they don't lose it when they go to jail. They may acquire property by gift or inheritance. So while they're incarcerated, somebody could, you know, give them property. Somebody could die and leave it to them. Okay, so there's nothing that prevents them, but it, but they can't enter into a contract. Uh, but can only convey property if the action is ratified the Cal- by the California Adult Authority. Now, I would have to say that if you go out to take a listing on a piece of property that's for sale and you're sitting there, and you've done your homework correctly. You know, in other words, if you've done what I always discuss in practice, where you've you've gone and you've seen, you know, you've checked the MLS to see what properties are selling for in the area, you've gone to the title company and gotten copies of the grant deed, and so you know when you sit down and talk to the people who actually owns it, when they came into title, all that stuff, and you sit down and, you, you know, there's a guy sitting there, a really nice guy, and you're talking, you say, by the way, uh, I, I, I think your name and your wife's name is on title. And he says, well, that's true, except she's in jail right now. Okay, in that particular case, you just cannot get that, you know, listing agreement and run down to the jail and talk to the person, you know, the, you know, the sergeant there and say, excuse me, you need to let me in here. They'll go, no, nobody ever knocks on the door and asks to come in. But you can't do that. You know, you need to have some kind of authorization or permission. And to what degree that happens to be is depending upon how long the person's incarcerated, what for, how long they're going to be there. So in that case, I would say that you would turn to that gentleman and say, how have you been handling situations like this with your wife currently in prison? You know, how have you done this? And they may say, well, my attorney has taken care of this. So you may very well have to get the attorney involved. And the reason why is because maybe... You know, they've gone through some litigation. They've had to hire somebody to take care of the thing. Now they've had to sell the house because they're going to move their family or they're going to do something else. And so you're going to be assisting them doing it, and you're going to need to get the writing because the title company is not going to transfer or is not going to insure the title, the transfer of the title, if there's, you know, somebody on there that is, you know, whose name's on the title unless they get that in writing. So there's going to ha- that's going to have to be cleared up. You know, it has to be. So you're going to have to get somebody involved in doing that. Okay, so that covers the three things. Again, capacity is that they have to be, you know, a certain age, unless they're emancipated, 18, unless they're emancipated. Uh, They have to be, um, 
let me see what was the other thing. So they can't be a minor incompetency. We have to talk about that. And the last thing is if they're a convict, okay? The second thing is that in order for a contract to work, we have to have what we call mutual consent, okay? Mutual consent means that both parties agree. You know, both parties agree. I've negotiated the contract, and we both agree that I'm going to paint your house for $2,000. When I get done painting your house, you're going to give me $2,000. In fact, I would venture to say that in some cases, even even if you probably, you probably have times when you probably should put things in writing, even if they don't have to be. I have seen a lot of times where people will hire a contractor and maybe not put it in writing, and the contractor's interpretation of what should be done as far as a paint job goes or what should be done as far as a roof work goes is different than your interpretation. So, for example, if I was going to put a new roof on a house, uh, my, intent, my definition of a new roof on the house is that I figure, well, the house has been there for a bunch of years. Uh, one, a couple things that I want done is I want you to take the old roof away. I want you to get rid of that. I want you to properly dispose of it. I want you to have permits to properly dispose of it. I don't want to get, an, I don't want to get a, a phone call from some police officer that's catching you dumping my roof on some side street. I want it appropriately disposed of. I want you to make sure that you have a permit to do that. Uh, if there's any kind of things that asbestos or anything that's in there that needs to be taken care of, I want you to get those permits correctly. I don't want to get fined or dinged for that. Um, on top of that, I want you to fix any damage that you see. So, for example, when you have the roof off, my definition of a new roof is that if you see dry rot, you're going to fix it. Okay? And we may even want to talk about that in the beginning. How much are you going to take care of before I'm going to have to start paying you some extra money? Another thing that I want to talk about is what about those drain spouts, you know, that are around the property? My definition is that you're either going to replace them while the roof is off, while it's easy, or you're going to fix what's there, okay? So those are the normal things. One of the things that's not normal that people can get into an argument with is you put all brand new gutters on the house. I think it makes sense to me before I put the gutters up and the leader, you know, the, the drown spouts coming down, that it makes sense to me to paint them before you put them up. Okay, because some houses, you know, it's tough to get up there and do the paintwork. So why not paint it while it's down? Their definition is, oh, we'll just put the gutters up and somebody else is going to worry about it. So I may very well get into an argument with them and say, well, my understanding was you're going to paint it. And they say, I'm not a painter. I'm not going to paint it. So we get into a disagreement. So that's why I say that you need to put it in writing. You know, if you want those things painted, you know, which can end up being a very costly thing, especially if you can't get up on a ladder, you know. I mean, that's a, if you've ever tried painting some of that, it's not as easy as you may think it is. It's easier to do when it's on the ground. You want to make sure that's really clear because otherwise, when you get to the end of it, you're going to pay them a check and they're going to say, well, I'm not going to fix that because uh, you know I won't do that. That's not part of the contract. So you want to know what is it you're actually going to do and get that negotiated and written down ahead of time so you don't have any disagreements. Uh, if for a lack of anything else, what color it should be, <laughs> that should trigger you. know, You don't want to come home and say, the gutters should be an earth tone color, but they're all white on the outside of the house because that's typically the way they come out of the machine. <laughs> you want to make sure they're the right color. Okay. So anyway, they talk here. They say, um, you know, mutual consent, uh, the acceptance. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Example, two days after entering into a binding a contract, the buyer and the seller decide mutually surrender the contract. Oh, let me go back here for a minute before we get to that part. 
just say mutual consent is a genuine offer by one party and a genuine acceptance by the other party. It's a meeting of minds. That's what mutual consent is. We agree to do what we're going to do in writing. Okay? The best way is in writing. Okay. Um, they do talk about here about uh, just some terms that we need to know that we have what an offer is. So we've talked about that before, what an offer is. Uh, so under mutual consent, we have an offer, and then we have an acceptance of the offer. Okay? Uh, so that's the offer. This is the acceptance. As it says here, the acceptance is the consent to the terms of the offeree, the person that made the offer. Acceptance of an offer must be in the manner specified in the offer. In other words, if they tell you that the offer has to be accepted in writing, you need to respond back in writing by signing a contract. In fact, when you make an offer on a piece of property, that's the normal way you do it. You make the offer on the property, and within the contract itself, it says times of the essence. Is an, you know, we expect that you have 48 hours to accept or reject this. If we don't hear back from you within 48 hours, the contract or the offer is terminated. Okay, So there's a, a way that that's laid out. Um, so anyway, it goes... Um, so acceptances in the, must be in the manner specified in the offer, but if no particular manner of acceptance is specified, then acceptance may be made by any reasonable or, or usual mode. Okay, so if you don't specify it, and that becomes important, you know, in other words, when you make an offer, you want to know, is it accepted or not? You know, especially, on, especially when you're shopping for a house. You know, you want to say, I made the offer. If this guy doesn't take that offer, then I want to be able to, you know, go down to the next one, the next one, whatever it happens to be. Okay? Now, after all this offer and counteroffer and all this other stuff, we get down to what happens, how, how can an offer or how can uh, a termination of an offer? There's a number of ways that we can terminate an offer. Okay? And it says that the hope of the offer, the person, in other words, the buyer in this case, is that the other party, which is normally the seller, will accept, accept, and that the contract will be formed. So your hope is when you make the offer on the property at that sales price under those terms, that the seller will go, my goodness, that is the best deal I've ever seen in my life. I love the deal. I'm willing to accept it. It's no problem. That's what you hope is going to happen. Okay, you hope that's going to happen. Um, uh, but it says it will be formed. But in, but most initial offers are rejected, which is true. Usually there's some part, you know, in which um, unless the seller is really, unless the buyer has really offered a great deal, like when 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 real estate's in really big demand, sometimes seller uh, sellers will have sit there where they have multiple offers. You know, they'll have more offers more than the sales price that they're asking for the house. That's not uncommon if it's a hot market. So, you know, um, but in most cases, though, usually that initial offer is usually rejected in the form of some kind of a counteroffer, you know, like the price is too low, uh, maybe some clarification of the contract, like I want to have a letter from the buyer that says that they are qualified for the loan now before I take it off the market, uh, you know, things along that line. They may come back and say limit the amount of liability in the sense of saying, you know what, okay, you can have a home inspector come in. That's okay. But I'm only going to fix up to $2,000 worth of work, okay? So you may do something like that. You may limit that. And that's also, 
the limits that you put on there can also, uh, it gives you a place that you can negotiate from further on down the line. So that if, uh, for example, if an inspector comes out and finds a lot of, you know, things that need to be done, and some of those things are things that need to be done and some of those things that would be nice to be done, um, you may have something that you're going to go back and negotiate and say, yes, I will fix the chimney, but no, I will not fix the drain pipe. There's nothing wrong with the drain pipe. Okay. In fact, I was watching this uh, show on TV this past weekend called Million Dollar Listing. It's a new show on, uh, I think it's like an A&E, ch- it's either A&E or Discovery type of a channel. I think it's, I think it's A&E or Bravo. I think it's Bravo. And it's about these real estate agents that sell multi-million dollar houses. And they sell them basically like in the Hollywood or, you know, in the more exclusive areas. And one of the offers that they had received on a house that was a house that was in the price range. It was an older house built, I think, in the 20s. And so they accepted the offer, and it was in the $900,000 range. Well, then they had the home inspectors come in. And I don't want to say anything really bad about the home inspectors, but when they got done, there was about $55,000 worth of repair work that they said needed to be done on the house. Now, now of course, that was totally unexpected by the seller. The seller had no – the seller actually, if I remember correctly, the scenario of the seller – I think uh, the seller just didn't expect that they were, they were going to have these kinds of things. Well, what it was is there were certain things that, according to their inspection, needed to be done. For example, the chimney had a crack in it, and so that was something that needed to be taken care of or adjusted. But there were some things that the seller just sat there and said, you know, you can kill me, but I'm not going to pay for it. For example, they were starting to talk about the fact that the water pipes, which were currently working, needed to be replaced because they were old. And the heating system that worked needed to be replaced. What they were talking about were things that were working now but maybe in the future would fail. And the seller turned around and said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to replace the water pipe because someday it may fail. This house is used. It's not new. If you want a new house, go get a new house. But this is a used house. So I think when all was said and done, I think they ended up where the – where the seller agreed, or I think the seller agreed to something in the form of about $10,000 concession out of that $55,000 cost. And their argument was, listen, you know, first they were all, also they were coming from a very strong point of negotiation because that was a pretty attractive price for that house in that area. And so, and the things that they said, I'm not going to fix are the things that were not broken right now. So anyway, you want to leave some room in, in there. That's the kind of counteroffer things that may go on. But anyway, uh, here are six ways that an offer can be terminated. Number one, lapse of time. The offer is terminated if the offer fails to accept within a prescribed period. That's why when we make an offer on a property for sale, an offer, what we normally do is say something like the seller has you know, 48 hours or 72 hours or some time frame in order to accept this offer. You want to know back. So what that means is that if I write the contract, you know, right now, which is, say, a Tuesday night, and I give the buyer, or I'm sorry, the seller, 48 hours to respond, that means not Wednesday, but Thursday, okay, if I do this right, not Wednesday, tomorrow, which would be 24, but Thursday, which would be 48, at, you know, say, you know, 6.15 on Thursday evening, that contract, if I have not gotten an offer back from the seller, is rejected, or is not rejected, but essentially it goes away because that's the limitation I've said. The reason why we do that is because we don't want to have these offers just laying around. We don't want to make an offer where, 
you know, it's just sitting there and sitting there. And maybe two months, two weeks later, the seller says, yeah, I guess I'll take that. No, you want to know now. Here's my offer. Are you going to accept it or are you going to reject it or are you going to counter off or what are you going to do? So time is one of the ways that it can be done. Second thing, uh, communication of a revocation. An offer can be withdrawn at any time before the other party has communicated his or her acceptance. I'll give you an example. Probably almost 20 years ago now, I bought a house in El Dorado Hills. The house had been on the market for a long period of time, long, long period of time. When I initially looked at the house for sale, it was in the price range of about $185,000. Every once in a while, I used to drive past the house and take a look at it. I knew that it was owned by a relocation company. You know, the interest rates were extremely high at that point in time. It was difficult to sell property. It was sitting on the market for a long period of time and owned by this relocation company. So anyway, time went by and by, and I kept my eye on it, and my wife and I would go out and look at other properties, but we sort of liked this property. And one day, we finally said, okay, we've looked at it, we've had it. We've looked at enough properties. Let's go ahead and take one more look at it again. We went and looked at it, and we said, that's it. And the price had gone from, uh, from 185000 to 149000 had dropped that much over that period of time because the relocation company couldn't sell it. In the meantime... This relocation company is paying somebody to take care of the hot tub, somebody to take care of the lawn, somebody to trim the bushes, on and on. They're putting out monthly expenses, so they drop the price. So I made an offer on the house, full price offer. No, I'm sorry, not a full price offer. They wanted 149, I offered 145,000, 145. So I wrote the, we wrote the offer up, we signed it. Real estate agent took off. Got a call back, I think it was that night or the next day. The agent says, I got some news for you. And I thought, wow, they accepted. She said, well, the news is this. She said, the company, unbeknownst to me, had dropped their price from 149 to 143. Okay, And what I wanted to do was (laughs) to let you know that the new price for the property was 143, not 145. Okay, So they had dropped it that much. So what we did, because the offer had not been presented, is guess what? I said to the agent, let's pull the offer back because it hasn't been, the offer hasn't been there, okay, yet, and we'll redo the offer and we'll make it for full price for 143. We did and the offer was accepted. The point is, is anytime prior to that offer being, going to them, I can just call up and say, give it back to me. I need to change something on it. I need to change my mind. Maybe I want to go up in price. Maybe I want to go down. Who knows? But I can do that. The next one is failure of the offeree to fulfill a condition. A specific condition must be satisfied in a prescribed manner or the offer is terminated. So, for example, uh, there might be some form of a condition that they have to fulfill. If they don't fulfill that condition, boom, it's it's, it's, it's gone away. Next thing is rejection. Rejection is if the offer is rejected, it's terminated. So, for example, a seller can do a number of things when they receive an offer. They can accept the offer and say, I accept it. They can counter-offer. They can say, you know, I'm going to write a counter-back. You know, you offered me 300000 I want, uh, and I originally wanted 350 I want 325 There might be something that we're going to do a counter-offer back on. Or the seller can just say, forget about it. I'm not going to accept the offer. In fact, you see that sometimes, especially when you get an offer from somebody that's what we consider to be a ridiculous offer, you know, where somebody just makes an offer that is so substantially below price or has so certain terms, just saying, well, may, maybe if I make enough of these offers, one of these people will accept it. And you just get it and say, you know what, I wanted 350 This guy wants to offer me 275 Forget about it. He's not even serious about the offer. 
I just reject the offer out of hand. Okay, that's the end of that. So we can do it that way. Uh, the next one, or if number five, is death or insanity of the offerer or offeree, which would be the buyer or the seller. Okay, so it says this would void the offer. The death of the offerer or the offeree constitutes revocation of the offer prior to acceptance. Prior to acceptance, uh, the offer the offer died with a death. Uh, the, the death of the offer. So what that means is if I'm the person making the offer, the buyer, I write this all out, this contract all out, make the offer, and before it's accepted, I have a heart attack. <laughs> it's, it's, the offer dies with me. Okay, That's the idea behind that. And then finally, illegality of purpose. If the conditions of the purpose of the contract are illegal, then the contract is terminated, which is suffice to say, you know, you can't enter into a legal binding contract that can't be enforced in law. It's not a contract. It's something that's illegal. Um, they go down here and they talk about some things. Uh, genuine consent contract is void avoidable by victim. This is talking about if somebody is victimized. So they talk about the final requirement for mutual consent is that the offer and the acceptance must be real and genuine, freely given, not under duress, no guns involved, no like if you don't sign it, you know, you're going to lose your job. If you don't sign it, I'm going to shoot you. None of that stuff is there. Free will is what we're talking about. If not, the contract is void or can become voidable as a victim. Genuine consent does not exist if any of the following conditions are present. Number one, fraud. Fraud occurs when a person makes some kind of a misrepresentation, okay? Uh, knowing that a fact is untrue, okay? That's fraud. Fraud would be, uh, you know, I'm going to sell a house to you. This house is a great house. It's in beautiful condition. It has a great swimming pool in it. But guess what? One of the things I did is I frauded, defrauded you or, or caused fraud because I didn't tell you that the pool has a great big crack in the bottom and it leaks water out all the time or that the roof leaks. I didn't tell you that. That's fraud. I've fraud or I've maybe I've not only did I do it, but I covered it up so that and then you discovered that I was just lying to you. You know, the roof was not real. The roof was not a brand new roof. What it was is I got up there with a can and sprayed it and it made it look like it was brand new. I said it was new, but it wasn't really new. I was lying. It's fraud. Okay. And you were paying, you were willing to pay that higher price because you thought you were getting a new roof or you thought you were getting a house with a good swimming pool only to find out you were really buying something that was defective. Okay. Number two, mistake. A mistake exists when both parties are mistaken as to the matter of the agreement or where the subject matter of the contract ceases to exist. A mistake is also void or avoidable. Let me give you an example here. They say, a buyer made an offer to purchase a property through a real estate agent. The seller represented that the property was in, good, in a good school district. During escrow, the school district boundaries were changed and the seller's home became part of a new school district the buyer would probably be able to get out of the transaction because the contract between the buyer and the seller lacked mutual consent. Okay, that may very well be stretching it a little bit. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, if the place was in, you know, if, if the place was in good, uh, good school district and for some reason it got changed, you know, and, and it was not, not you know, it was not the, um, seller that caused that to happen or the seller that lied, I don't know how much you could get by with doing that, okay? 
you know, I really don't know. Uh, duress. Duress is another thing. Duress is an unlawful deten- uh, detection, uh, detention of a person and or the person's property. So that that would be, you know, putting you, we go back to the car sales thing sometimes. I hate to say that, but, you know, where, you know, you, you're just underneath this pressure to perform. Uh, or people think that you're going to affect some kind of, some of their personal property or something like that. Something that's distress, uh, duress, you know, making you in. Menace, a threat to commit duress, but it is also a threat of an unlawful violent injury to a person and or to her character or person or whatever. In other words, if you don't do something right, I'm going to say something terrible about you. Okay? That kind of a thing. But you're threatening to do it. You haven't done it. You're threatening to do it. If you don't do this, I'm going to do that. That kind of a thing. I'm going to report you, so to speak. An undue influence occurs when a person or is in a position of authority uses that authority to an unfair advantage. This is usually found in a confidential relationship. So, in other words, if you have, you know, somebody that's, you know, has some, sometimes we feel like that with bosses, you know, like they have a terrible influence over us, okay? But, you know, if they have some kind of undue influence, something that can force us to do something, okay? So that covers the, uh, this, this again is all down to the fact that we're talking about, uh, um, uh, let me see, we were talking about mutual consent. All those things come down to mutual consent, okay? The third thing that they talk about in here for a contract to be valid is legality. It has to be legal, Okay? In other words, we cannot go to court, we cannot go to a judge and have the judge enforce a contract that's making us break a law. You can't do that. Like, you must rent that property to me. You must rent that that retail space to me to put my liquor store in there. Even so, it's illegal for me to do that. You can't do that. You can't go to the judge and say, I want you to break the law and enforce my contract. You just cannot do that. Okay? So it has to be legal. Okay, and the last thing is something called consideration. And as they say here, consideration can be anything of value. Uh, you can find that, for example, people may buy real estate and say, you know what, I want to buy this uh, this small apartment building, and what I'd like to do is give you as part of the offer, I'm going to go ahead and, and deed over my single-family home, not the home I live in, maybe a rental piece of property. I could do that. I could maybe agree to them and say, you know what, when I make the offer, part of the money that I'm going to be paying you is going to be a note and a deed of trust on a property that I have. You know, the note and deed of trust is in the amount of $50,000 that people have been paying for a bunch of years, and I'm going to use that as part of my payment for the property. I could do that, that's, so that's a note. I could do that where I could maybe say I'm going to offer you a car or a motorcycle, or I could be doing something where I may even be offering some services to you. I may say, uh, for example, I, I will, uh, you know, normally for you to get a brand new roof on your house is going to cost you $20,000, of which 25% of that is materials, the rest is labor. I'll put a new roof on your house, and I want you to credit me $15,000 for the purchase of the house. So I can have anything that's of value that I'm going to use as part of this thing called consideration. Okay, so that's why we just want to make sure that you're aware of um, aware of that. Um, 
And I think we're getting pretty close to the end now. Uh, there's a few other things that you're probably going to want to look at. It talks about uh, contracts, uh, proper real estate contracts need to be in writing. Okay. Uh, all contracts may be oral, except those specifically required by the statute of frauds. And in the, in the next time we meet, I'll show you in the statute of frauds where all of a sudden after you read down through that, you see where it has to be in writing because it's a real estate contract. In other words, it doesn't necessarily say real estate, but what it does is after you read it for a while, you'll see where it'll show up. Um, To be in writing, a contract for personal property can be either be oral and written, okay? But the statute of frauds requires that most real estate contracts be in writing. So we're going to talk about that the next time. Now, personal property, remember, personal property could be things such as... uh, Washing machines, dryers, you know, drill presses, skill saws, you know, that's all personal property. Real property, on the other hand, is land and things that are attached to the land. Those things need to be in writing. And we say statue of frauds. What we're really doing is by, by requiring that things be in writing, we are now clearly putting that down so that if later on there's a misunderstanding about something, we can go back and look at that contract and say, no, you didn't remember. Don't you remember that we both agreed that the price of this was going to be, you know, $100,000 and that you agreed that you were going to pay the escrow and the title fees for it? It's right here in writing. You know, it's right here in writing. So it, prefer, it prevents fraud, if you will. It prevents fraud is what it really does or prevents misunderstanding of fraud. So anyway, I think... Um, Let me see. I'll point out where that happens to be in your book, and we'll talk about it more the next time. On this page is the Statue of Frauds, which is located right here. Okay. And uh, I think a little bit of time here, I'll just mention what this is. It says, most contracts, which by the statute are required to be in writing, are found under the Statue of Frauds. The Statue of Frauds was first adopted in England in 1677 and became part of the uh, the English common law. That's one thing you're going to find out is that most of our laws that we have here in the United States are usually coming from the English common law or they're coming from Spanish law. So you'll see things coming from the, because those are the two of the big countries that had a major influence upon, you know, our settlement and our development. So that's where, and what happens is, is that if you think about it, if you're coming from another country and you've got to create something brand new, and you've never had it before, what you're going to do is you're going to go back to that country and say, well, how do we do it there? And they said, oh, well, you know, we had certain things that we had to put in writing. Oh, okay, that sounds like it's a good idea, so why don't we do that here? So that's why we're talking about that that's where that stuff is coming from. So anyway, the next time um, we're going to go over there, we stopped at that point, which is the Statue of Frauds, and the next time is that's where I'll pick up, okay? With that, as I mentioned before, remember this is a really important part of real estate. Real estate contracts is extremely important. You don't want to end up where you're standing in front of a judge who's going to very politely say, thank you, um, I understand that you meant to check the box, but it's going to cost you $20,000. So with that, thanks a lot for watching, and we'll see you back here again. Have a nice day.